Welcome, movie fans. Thanks for joining us for episode 87 of Reading Between the Reels, the premium podcast of Oscar Isaac's Beard. If you're a new listener, we're so glad you found us. And if you've been enjoying the show, please tell us something about us. Post on X or Facebook, write a review on your favorite podcast catcher, or just recommend the show to a friend. I'm Craig Dickinson, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Corey Heitschmidt and Justin Olin. What's up, fellas? How are we doing tonight? We're good, except I hate sand. It gets coarse, it's irritating, and it gets everywhere. Justin. I'm also good. I didn't, I didn't plan anything <laughs> clever this time. Sorry. Yeah. Well, wow, that was like two Star Wars references, kind of. We're not Already. doing Star Wars tonight, though. We're oh, doing, we're doing Star Wars We're tonight. We're doing the movie adaptation of the book that is an inspiration for much of Star Wars. Star Wars. We're doing Danny Villeneuve's Dune from 2021 tonight. Poe Dameron is in this movie. Well, yeah. So is Thanos and Aquaman. and I got them all. Oh, you wait till you hear my uh, yeah. take on this. If Lord of the Rings and Star Wars had a baby, it would be Dune. <laughs> That's, That's right. That's interesting. Yeah. But there'd be some questionable parentage with Game of Thrones. They, they'd have to go on Jerry Springer and really do like the <laughs> DNA test. Oh, we're going there. Okay. Yep. Yeah. It is interesting that we did Lord of the Rings last time and now we're doing Dune, which is very similar in a lot of respects. Uh, but yeah, let's go ahead and we'll jump in with our overall thoughts. Justin, I'm going to start with you. Overall thoughts on, on Dune. Can I go after Corey? Actually, can I please? <laughs> you want to want to save that? Yeah, Corey. Yeah, you I go will. Ahead. Yeah. All right. All right. Listen. Yeah. Let's start with the bad because Justin, I bet you love this movie. I. I. What does that mean? Well, I, don't I know. bet I you mean, loved I, this movie. <laughs> I bet you loved this movie. Listen, I'm confused about what is going on, and I would love to see the max statistics about how many times this movie has been started and not finished. <laughs> Or skipped ahead like 20 minutes at a time to the next part, to the next part, to the next part. It is a slow build. Now, I will say they caught me at the end to go, okay, I will watch the second one. But it was a very slow build to get to a payoff. I felt like exactly like Force Awakens where Ray finds Luke and he doesn't say anything at the end. It's like, oh, my gosh, here's Ray. That's Zendaya. Zendaya is the Luke Skywalker. You know she's coming the whole movie, and at the end you see her right there, and then that's it. And then, it's, okay, I know she's going to have some big pivotal role in the next one. Um, so here's here's my take on this movie. I think the guy from Avengers, who's still under Loki's spell, uh, sends his nephew Drax from the Guardians of the Galaxy as a bad guy to fight Willy Wonka, who's going to be Neo from The Matrix, and who's the son of Poe from Star Wars. <laughs> what is happening? And is trained by Thanos to fight an impossible mission with Ilsa Faust from Mission Impossible, who prepares him as his mother to go on a planet with Graboids from Tremors, where Aquaman is a soldier and gets killed off. Sorry for that spoiler if you hadn't seen it. And uh, Mary Jane is going to be the future love leader or love interest of he's going to have. Uh, is the leader of a resistance group along with Captain Zalazar from Pirates of the Caribbean. And the whole movie is going to culminate with a Top Gun flying through valley scene where they have to crash. They end up crashing because uh, it's not the Thopter, it's the pilot. I mean, I'm just saying that's <laughs> where my mind was for this whole movie. All of the, the star power is unmatched. They have got everybody in here. But I spent my movie time like... Wait, okay, what did I see this person in? What did I see oh, this geez. person in? What did I see this person in? 
because I got it's the typical meme where we were watching it and someone's always over on the side looking and explaining where all these characters are from in other movies. <laughs> That's what I felt like I was doing. And uh, it, it's not a terrible, terrible movie. It's just not my oh. cup of tea. It was very slow. It was a, but I can tell, I can tell as a two parter, this is not a movie. This is like the first part of a epic tale. Mm-hmm. And Lord of the Rings has paid off. Star Wars has paid off. Back to the Future movies paid off. So I feel like I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to wait for the second one and see if they give me a payoff at the end. That's my take. Okay. Justin. Okay, Corey, I think you need to like stop watching movies and go touch <laughs> some grass or something. Cause <laughs> you, you're, 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 you made me go first. You're in too deep, my man. Um, no. Um, I really enjoy this movie. Ah, and really. in prepping for this movie, I was actually surprised with how many people had a similar opinion. Uh, I went back and like watched a lot of reviews from people around the time this movie came out. About a year ago? Is that when that came out? This movie's 21. Oh, my goodness. What I know. happened to time? Yeah. Jeez. Um, you're right. 2021. Weird. Um no, a lot of people kind of felt the same way, Corey, about they weren't sure. It was kind of a slow burn. And uh, I know a lot of people are were waiting. They're like, I can't fully judge this film because it's a it's essentially a prologue to the second half. Uh, but and, and it's definitely not a standalone film like it. It leaves you hanging more so than I, I remember the first time I watched Fellowship of the Rings. I felt Fellowship of the Ring singular. Uh, I felt kind of shafted because it ended so abruptly. This one is more so that. Uh, but overall, I thought the film was gorgeous. Uh, the character development was fantastic. I think everyone except for maybe like Duncan Idaho was cast really well. Duncan Idaho, Idaho I'm a, or Idaho Dunk, whatever his name was. Um, I was. I was a little iffy on that casting. I could be talked into it, but it just didn't. Jason, Jason Momoa just plays Jason Momoa all the time, and I don't know if that's a Jason Momoa role. He didn't have a beard. Role. He didn't <laughs> have a beard. You're right. He he is quite versatile in that he can yeah. shave and then grow it back. Uh, no, I, I thought it was absolutely fantastic, and it kind of makes me happy in a world of MCU and DCEU. It's like, okay, we can, we can still make epic movies. We can still make fantastic movies. And yeah. Craig pointed out, I, I don't pay attention to directors and things like that as much as Craig does, uh, pointed out same director as Blade Runner 2049, which I love that film, and I'm realizing I love these films for the same reason. It's <laughs> the epic scale and world building. Everything is so large, like your mother, uh, and it's great. I love it. <laughs> like your mother. Wow. Uh, you gotta yeah, follow that, Craig. I, I do. Yeah. Okay. Wow. What do I? What do I start? Yeah, Corey. I love this movie too. And but I'm also a big fan of the book, and so I'm not lost in what's happening. And I, I've said this many, many times. The the biggest compliment that I can give to this movie is that it feels like the book. It obviously has to trim certain things. Is it is a it is a dense universe. And we we talked about Lord of the Rings earlier. It, like it is Lord of the Rings in space. There's appendices at the back of the book. Uh, but it, it does, it would still, they, I think they, they trim some things that you can get away with, but still they're doing some heavy lifting on the world building. And I felt like, yeah, this is, this is how it felt when I read the book. And then finding out this time that Kevin J. Anderson, um, 
who co-wrote and fin- kind of finished the original um, original story and also wrote some prequels with with uh, Frank Herbert's son was a special consultant on this movie. So that makes sense. They've got essentially a Dune expert working on the film. Uh, but I think um, this is this is science fiction at its intellectual and philosophical best. I'm like it, this is like not an action movie. It is a it is a slow burn sci-fi makes you think. Um, and I like that stuff. I like getting into the weeds a little bit with that. And, and as Justin said, you know, yeah, if you like Blade Runner 2049, like this is absolutely in that same vein. Not just Denny Villeneuve, but a ton of crew worked on the on both movies. Uh, it looks similar in, in, in some regard. I mean, you have Hans Zimmer's score as well, so it, it feels that way too. Yeah, um, Zimmer. But I mean, this this film was it won Oscars for best score. Speaking of Zimmer, best cinema, uh, best sound, best cinematography. Some things we're gonna pull out: best production design, best film editing, best visual effects, and was also nominated for best picture, best adapted screenplay, best costume design, best makeup and hairstyle. So, yeah, they clearly spent. I mean. The, you can see the money on screen. It's less than two hundred million in, in production budget. I don't know how they get away with that because this is, I think, just a gorgeous, really, really well-made film. I'm going to say that. I'm going to say that about this because one, I will say first off, my wife, I, for her overall thoughts, she said any movie where you kill off Jason Momoa is a terrible movie. So that's what <laughs> okay. she said. Okay. I, well, quick spoiler. Spoiler. He's coming. He's coming back. Ah. Oh, Craig. Craig. You got her in for the sequel. Not in this. Not see, in the next. Not in Dune Part Two. He's not no. in Dune Part Two. What the but, heck? How many parts is there to Dune? Well, there's seven books of the mainline. Oh, I thought this was a saga. one and two parter. I no, was, uh, it's Dune. Dune twelve hours. Oh Dune, my Dune Messiah. Well, I don't know if we're gonna get filmed. I hope they do. Oh, I feel really like do. we okay. just did a movie where Corey was surprised that it was a two part. <laughs> oh, it was in t- across every, the Spider Verse. Across the Spider Verse. Uh, yes, and Mission Dead Impossible. Reckoning, Thank you very which, much. Yeah, oh, and Mission Impossible. But, See, yeah, but Jason Momoa is a great Duncan Idaho. If you know the <laughs> book, you know this. Jason Momoa is good. I love him. So he's a swashbuckler. That's who he is. Yeah, I just think as Aquaman, he shouldn't be in that drive a climate. It doesn't really work for him. <laughs> it's yeah. a different. He's acting. Oh. You and Corey both. Oh, I've seen that guy. It must be the same guy. Is that Thanos? No, that's Josh it's, Brolin. Everything's in, interconnected, Craig. All the worlds Goonies. of all I, the films. Let's stop it. I have a fan theory. They're all connected because this is like a Thanos before he became Thanos. I don't know. I'm just saying. This is when like, I see these movies, tens I, of thousands of years in the future. Oh, no, this is Thanos's world, and he was sad there weren't yes, enough resources. Yes, yes, oh, yes. Wow. What is this podcast turning into, Craig? You need to fire us. Hey, I got a better idea. Let's talk about the cinematography for which <laughs> okay. one a best hey, act, best, so, best, uh, uh, best cinematography. Oscar. I'm going to start with this one because yeah. here's why. Yeah, I. Craig, like Justin said, you are a genius. You, <laughs> you that. are the I didn't man say of that. movies. I'm not don't, kidding. Don't put those words in my mouth. Yes. No. <laughs> every director, every cinematographer, every music composer, everything. Like if they want to get credit, they need to come on this podcast. That's that's the kind of thing because Craig will be like, I know <laughs> need exactly us, right? your entire resume, everything. <laughs> you, I wouldn't know him from a lineup. Now, not knowing that. I watched this, and in my notes here, I wrote, this movie feels like Blade Runner in the feel, the music, the grit, and the scenes. I had no idea that the director was the Blade Runner 2049 director. So in the in my sense, it's kind of one of those things where you see a, a style from a director carries across into mm-hmm. the next next movie they do, the next project, that they have these styles. 
you know, Zack Snyder does it. He's the template for everything. But like these guys who do Blade Runner and all these other things, they have this style that carries through and it's recognizable for people who know them like you do. So, uh, I mean, it, and it is, it is the, the composition is a great movie. This, the CGI on this movie holds up incredible. Absolutely. You could not tell me that this movie had CGI in it with how good it was. I mean, it was just amazing. And uh, the Thopter copters, whatever they are. Yeah, the Thopters, yeah. Those, uh, at first I was like, what is this nonsense? But then I was like, okay, these are kind of cool. Like, I kind of like them. So Straight from the book, first time I've seen it represented in a way that made sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, it looks like that could actually be a, a thing. I, I disagree a little bit on the CGI being great. There are a couple scenes where I'm like, ew, gross. But uh, for the most part, I think it was fantastic. Yeah, there's a lot of practical effects in this film as well. Some of that has to have been models. I can't like the. Yeah. I can't see how they could blend that in so well to make it look. That's it's movie magic, Corey. That's that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. This that's why I think the composition and the camera work in this movie is amazing to do that. But before we go too much farther, I do want to call out the fact that yes, the Danny Villeneuve did do both 2049 and this, but Roger Deakins did the cinematography on on 2049, and Greg Frazier did the cinematography on this film. Who also did Zero Dark Thirty. There's at least one shot that reminded me so much of that. Did Rogue One, did the Batman, which was nominated for uh, and the creator is in addition to this. So and oh, several Rogue, also the I, I can see some Rogue One in here. Yes. Yeah. He's definitely got a style. So Yeah. Um are there specific instances that you want to pull out, Corey, before we talk move to yes. Justin? Or? Yeah. Uh there's one scene that I think they set up really well. There's there's a ton of great camera angles that I think go on in here. The one thing that stood out to me, because I try and pay attention to that now after working with Craig all these times, <laughs> is when he does the – he's in the room. It's like a giant library-type room with mm-hmm. the Benny Gesserit lady, the old lady. Yeah, the Reverend Mother, yeah. When she's sitting, the camera is mounted from her eye level. Did anybody else know that? The camera is at her eye level the whole time, looking up at his head from everywhere in the room. But then – when she stands, the camera is no longer at that level. It's at, at her eye level. It stayed. It's almost as if it stayed at her eye level for that whole scene, which I thought was kind of an interesting thing. I felt – I don't know whether that was on purpose, intentional, or it's what, maybe I'm making something out of it. But to me, it felt like it was a way of showing her looking at him more. Yeah, and being in control. Um, yeah, that's that's a good take. And then for him, this is the one last thing that I got that really stood out to me because I got confused throughout this whole movie, as did I'm pretty sure a lot of people statistically on Max if we saw the stats. I got confused about all these visions and everything he was having and what he was supposed to do. And the way that I kind of thought of it was like branches. Like he sees branches of or, – or like threads, multiple timelines, like in the TVA and Marvel, what they do with the branching of the timelines. Now, the one shot that I thought was a payoff for that was there's a scene where he's looking, and I don't even know what it is, but there's all these threads he's looking through, right? And uh, I, 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 don't, I can't even remember the scene, but it was like this. I should show you guys that picture. So oh, that's got- where he was doing like the, the learning. Uh, he was like studying yeah, about the, the planet. Yeah. Yep. yeah. And as he's doing that, he sees all these branches and all these threads. And I felt like that's kind of like him. He sees things that could be, can be, he has to make a choice. It's like branches of timelines that mm-hmm. he's he's trying to sort between to figure out what he's going to do. Huh. And I thought, okay, that's kind of an intriguing 
way of saying this guy is choosing what path he's going to do. So stood out to me. That's interesting. So as someone who didn't read the book, you completely picked up on the fact that he is being faced with a choice of how to essentially, he has multiple paths. Yeah. I mean, that's the golden path is a thing that we'll get into the books later where his son tries to, tries to follow. So yeah, that's, because I, yeah. I didn't, I haven't read the books. Yeah. I never watched the old movie. I my brother, don't bother oh, you. Shout out movie. to him. He's he's read these books multiple times. Watched the movie Kyle MacLachlan, everything, and knows this backwards and forwards. But and I just it's not. I never got into it. But so watching that, I tried to had to see if I could make sense of it. Justin, we're on cinematography. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um. So I don't think Corey liked, I feel like this is probably a lot of the slow part. Um, a lot of the other reviewers I watched said that, you know, you could have tightened up on the editing. You could have uh, reduced the runtime or maybe given it a more good conclusion uh, by, by tightening up on the editing. But I think the cinematography and like the amount of time they spend just like sweeping over the desert and just showing how there's, there is nothing there. Like there is, there is nothing on that planet. And just how, like, it really lends to what a difficult position House Atreides is in. Like, you have uh, the Fremen, you have the Harkonnen House, uh, yeah, House Harkonnen, yeah. Mm-hmm. like, uh, against you, you have uh, the desert, just ev- everything. Everything is working to against you. You are 100% set up to fail, and they felt so trapped and like you could see the stress that uh, the Duke Oscar Isaacs is in like all of, all of that slow build and that slow burn like adds to the suspense and the, the stress of that entire situation. And I think how it's just, it's beautiful in like a very hopeless way and a very, I don't know, like beautiful yet ugly at the same time, because just there's, there's just nothing there. And the same thing with their home planet. Like you kind of get a sense for the beauty of the home planet. You you get a sense that it's very green and it's very moist and wet and there's there's oceans and things like that and you're going from that to nothing. And that sh- that must have been just such a environmental shock for them. But you couldn't get that from anything less than I don't know, 20 30 minutes of sweeping landscapes all throughout. I I thought it was fantastic. But in, but then he didn't seem to be struggled by that, which I agree with you. I absolutely agree with you because I kind of thought, wouldn't there have been a contrast from the planet he was from to the planet here? And they're like, oh, you shouldn't be out in this heat. He's walking while the guy's watering the palm trees, you know, and he's just walking out like, hey, it's no big deal. I'm okay. I mean, I like think some of it is implied. That's the chosen one. Some of it is implied. And then I think the other part is uh, you see a lot of that when Paul and Lady Jessica – are kind of abandoned in in the desert and he's a little bit more trained and he's able to like set up the tent and he's able to survive out there yeah. where she doesn't really seem to know what's going on. Like he totally takes point in, in leading her and like helping her survive. By the well, way, the, the name, the name I, I know it came from the book, but we have all these like sci-fi sounding names. And then we got like Jessica. Ugh, I hate yeah. that. <laughs> like Paul. I mean, come on. I, I mean, Paul, if, if we're going like, you know, uh, biblical allegories and stuff like that. Paul makes sense, but I mean, Jessica's like 
that annoying girl in class that never shuts up, you know? Like uh-huh. it's yeah. that never bothered me. I'm sorry, Jessica. Any Jessicas out there, I apologize now. <laughs> wow. But- You're upset. All these years in the future, all these names uh-huh. are have survived except for Justin. You know There's no Justin. Maybe uh, you did it, Corey. That was we even, we even <laughs> have an, so we, it's well, a big Corey universe. Didn't survive either. There we even have be. an Idaho in there. So Okay, yeah, Duncan Idaho, a little little bit there too. Uh yeah. have some have some issues. Such a great character though. You'll get yeah. by. You get through. No. no. Okay. Anything else? No. Okay. Uh I, I have so much. I just wanna again, Greg Frazier's and it, we talked about him being especially Rogue One, I think, is the one I look at the most. His sense of scale, like in the Rogue One, for instance, like the Death Star felt enormous in a way that it never did in the original film. And there's so many opportunities for those kinds of things in this film. Like all of the ships are enormous. The Highliner, which is essentially like, you know, it's, that's the transport ship that has to carry all the other other very large ships from planet to planet. It's just enormous. Shai Halud, the worm, is on a scale that's breathtaking. Just it's ridiculous. But there is one shot, too, of uh, the Thopter. It's like a bird's eye view looking down on the Thopter. And the Thopter is tiny just flying over that giant landscape. And there's a shot almost exactly like that in zero dark 30 with it, with helicopters going in, um, over the desert there. So I was just like, yep, that's kind of him riffing on himself. I thought that was pretty great. Um, some other things that, that I really liked. Um, this is one actually, I think that Matt leader back in the day pulled out that I really liked was when they, um, right after there's the Gom Jabbar test, which I want to get to that too. Um, Paul and Jessica are talking about, and they're whispering to each other about Paul possibly being the one that he's upset that she's kind of manipulated that situation. And it's, it's shot in a way where you think they're really close, but then they pan back and you see they're like 20 feet apart when they're talking. I thought that was just amazing that they're able to have this conversation in private, but also really, really far away. Um, some other things that I really liked, um, that you had lots of natural sunlight, Sometimes even just kind of almost like a lens flare, uh, kind of obscuring the image uh, of Chani. That's Zendaya's character. Uh, but you also have like everything on Getty Prime. The Harkonnen home planet is kind of shrouded in deep shadows because they're you know, dark for dark business, that kind of stuff. And it's the same thing on Seleucus Segundus, the Imperial Army planet. They're both dark and gray and they're the bad guys kind of hiding in the dark, which is you know, bad people. Even. They don't want people to know what they're doing. Uh, and the same thing with like the invasion happens in low light, too, because... They're sneaky. Uh, but the thing I really want to talk about with the camera work was, uh, and Corey, I love that you pulled out that that great shot of her kind of sitting in the middle, Reverend Mother sitting in the middle yeah, uh, when she's going to test him. But the thing I really like is there's a shot counter shot where they're focusing mainly on Paul as he's got his hand in the box. Uh, and this, I'm going to skip kind of to um, body language too, is that he's struggling that whole time until he's not. And then the look, then they pan back to her and like you can see her physically shaken that he passed the test and the way he just kind of mans up and levels up. Like yeah. he gets to the point where he almost just accepts the pain. Yeah. And she's shocked that this is what's happening. So um, just just a beautiful movie. Just so well done. And it's just a wide variety of, of camera work. And I, I didn't feel at any point that anything was unnecessary. So um, just, just a lot of good stuff there. I thought it was interesting how um, uh, you'll have to take me back to the book on this one. How the the place where uh, House of Trades lives is not lit. I don't think there were were any lights in there. 
they either used sunlight or they had that little like glowing orb that followed the, them around. The glow globes, yeah. Oh, yeah. I like that little thing. Yeah, those are yeah. cool. Yeah, that Probably saves on electricity. That would be great. Yeah, that was pretty great. That's, again, right from the book. You were like, this is one of those things, those small little touches that they didn't have to do, but someone who loves the book. Say, seeing that, I will tell you this. There are so many little elements that go into a bunch of other sci-fi movies that are pulled from this book movie then. Because that little glowing orb thing is in Halo. Um, the spice is mentioned in Star Wars. I mean, I, I could see where – because yeah. this movie was written in what? The 60s? Yeah, the book's from the 60s. So, so like, you know, this influenced people. I mean, this, Tatooine uh, is, is yeah, clearly based on Arrakis. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, all of this is quite uh, quite an influential movie. You see that this makes its mark. There's a historical significance to this book movie, you know that that these directors had grown up with. So um, let's talk about the sound again. This one Oscars for best sound and best original score. So for effects, soundtrack, vocal sounds, what are some things that we liked? I would just like to take a moment and talk about bagpipes. Yes. I hate bagpipes. No, no, I hate bagpipes. Oh, with a with a passion. There's a butt coming. But no, no, hang on. I need to talk more about how I hate bagpipes. I hate bagpipes so much that my like internet algorithm thinks that I like bagpipes because I spend so much time reading about how dumb bagpipes are. Like who's like against uh, the Scottish? Justin. Oh, okay. Scottish, and I'm sorry. Listen, our Scottish audience. If your name is Jessica and you are Scottish, I'm (laughs) sorry. This isn't for you. We have Scottish listeners and probably some Jessicas out there. You know what? Scottish listeners fight me. Um, (laughs) I hate the sound of them. Who is like, Oh yeah, a cow dying. We should turn that into a musical instrument. Oh, wow. It's awful. But, but in this movie, I liked it because you had on the uh, Atreides homeworld, you had yep. a little bit Cal of bagpipes Dan. there mm-hmm. in the in the in the background. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Craig. Nerd alert. No Jeez. Just Cal kidding. Dan. Sorry. Um, I'm a you had the bagpipes here. in the background, and then as soon as they step on to their new planet, like first guys that walk out are these bagpipe players, and they're like, "Boom, we're bringing our culture with us." So mm-hmm. in that sense, it sounded awful. It was. Again, cows dying, but I liked that it uh, it reinforced that they are bringing part of themselves with them. They may have left their home planet, but they're they're bringing the culture. Ten thousand years in the future, and bagpipes are the only instrument that survives. Well, it's, it's more than ten thousand years. It's ten thousand dated from something else. But yeah. listen, we lost the name 000. Justin, but we kept bagpipes. So <laughs> what is the point? There you go. No, low. We can get into the weeds. It's pretty deep on the culture and. There's no computers, you know. Yeah. yeah, that's a whole thing. Corey, any uh, sound stuff that you wanted to pull out? Uh, you know, I I did notice there's always this music in the background at, at first, and then there were a lot of points where it got silent and there was no music in the background. I thought it kind of definitely pulled out a little more seriousness in situations. Um, the other part that I thought was that as a new to this genre story type person. When they were speaking Slytherin all the time, I didn't understand what that was, where they changed their perception of their voice and what she was telling them to do. The, the voice, until, yeah. Until I saw that they were in the Thopter and those guys were going to get rid of them. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, oh, it's a form of mind control. It's Jedi mind tricked them. Yeah. They Jedi mind tricked them by speaking Slytherin. A lot of people don't know that, but that's very good. It's very good. 
they, Corey, they set that up in that first scene with with Paul and Jessica yes, at the table. Yes, that was the payoff, Craig. But in the first scene, I thought, what the heck? Use the voice. Yeah. And Capital his P. eyes, how he locked lies and like, okay, I could tell he's serious here. Yeah. And then I thought it was just about like a power and a dominance, not mind control, Jedi mind trick. So they're they're just using the teacher voice, they're, and yeah, they're like, I, oh my goodness, I better, <laughs> I better I mean, pass this to you. Kinda. Okay. This this used to be such like a like an intellectual deep dive type of podcast. <laughs> no. And now we're talking about Slytherin is. and it's, and uh, it's, no, Jedi mind. Listen, I'm speaking for the common man. That's He's who a I'm dude newbie. Up That's for. true. He's the layperson. Okay. I'm Thank the layperson coming in here with no foresight into this movie. Hey, how does that? I'm always like the odd man out on on these movies, but uh, it's it's you this time, Corey. It's it feels very, good up here on the on my high horse. <laughs> it's very down. unsettling. It is. The, we- the weather's nice up here. Yeah, it's a little dry. It is. <laughs> that was really lame. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. So best one best sound. I think, but things that I that I really loved sound wise. I love the shield vibration. The whole shield thing is Ooh, just cool. yeah yeah the the Holtzman shields. The Orenthopter wings, though, man, that just absolutely sold yeah. it for me that those things were were legit and would actually fly. But the the my favorite one though is just Shai Halud, the worm just erupting from underneath is just so intimidating and just it's feel. I know it's not real, but man, it feels real. And it, I mean, it goes back to the scale. It would be so much less scary if you were not aware yep. of the scale, but to see Absolutely. it eat that spice harvester, yeah. you're like, which is enormous. Crap, this thing yeah. Is huge. Okay. At that point I realized that. Yeah. 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 That thing's huge. And that thing's even huger. Um, soundtrack. Uh, you know what I love is it's, you got to watch these movies with sometimes with the subtitles on it's, it's Hans Zimmer again. I just love Hans Zimmer so much, but um, the thing that's funny is watching people who do the subtitles, try and interpret and describe <laughs> things. So instead of the ancient lamentation music for wonder woman, for uh you know, Justice League, which was great. We have dramatic lamentation music, which is yeah. actually, it's pretty similar. Um, but I, I love that very much. It's a great theme when it comes in. You get, but this, you know, it's anytime with like Paul, you know, is kind of assuming his destiny, that thing kicks in. But there's, it's the whole thing with Dune too, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of years in the future is that all of these things have kind of, the cultures have integrated and, and reformed and all these different things. And so the soundtrack also kind of incorporates all these just all seemingly random stuff like Indian bamboo flutes, Irish whistles, uh, guitar, you had a, a, warm, a, cellos. Did I can't pronounce this? Digrid. Didgeridoo. Thank you. That's the yeah. word. Didgeridoo. Yeah, I love I love the sound of that thing. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. so otherworldly. Like uh, especially when they're when they're playing it when all the soldiers are getting ready to go yeah. invade. Ah, beautiful. Yeah, that's one, the one thing that I, that I am missing from the books is that, and hopefully we'll get it in the second one, is that there's a thing called a balisset, which is like a kind of like a guitar or a lyre from like ancient times that Gurney Halleck, that's Josh Roland's uh, character plays. So because he, he quotes poetry, we do see that, which again, if you have the subtitles on, you can see that it's in quotation marks when he's talking a lot of times. Uh, you, but he also he also sings and plays. You al- you also see him like looking in his little little book every so often. So I think the yeah. audience you can assume it's poetry. Uh, and see, I'm thinking that's the Orange Catholic Bible right there. So that's oh, that's you cool. bring up a point. This movie is one you have to watch with closed caption on. You can't you can't watch it without the the subtitles on. You have to see it that way. Well, I don't think I watched it with subtitles. I got to go back and watch it again. I, Darn well, it! Well, because I they're mumblers a lot of times, and some of the things they do, and I think, but then it also sets up a little bit, like like Craig said, the lamentation music yeah. or you know, dramatic so, lamentation, dramatic lamentation music. Corey, what are your thoughts on the dramatic lamentation music? 
I love it. I think it's wonderful. Yeah. I, it's, oh, okay. it's, it, it took me out of it every so often. Like it, I don't like to be aware that there's music playing, um, which is probably why I'm so bad at this part of the podcast where we talk about music because I'm not ever aware. But yeah, every every time they started the dramatic lamentations, I'm like, oh, oh, little much. Cool it. I love well, it. Well, Wonder Woman kind of ruined it for a lot of people. Well, probably. That. I love that so much from Wonder Woman too. I might have said it wrong multiple times. Ballaset is what Gurney Allen plays. Um, I also had the diegetic bag- bagpipes, which were great. I'm glad you pulled that out. Which also we get to hear that non-diegetically as Gurney leads the the guys against the Harkonnens when they when they invade. So you get to hear them again. Diegetically, what would yeah. that mean for our so listeners? I, mean, I know, but what for our listeners who don't know? Diegetic is the music that the characters either play or can hear. So when the bagpipes okay. show up on the planet, that's in-universe. Non-diegetic would be like the dramatic lamentations. All so right. the dramatic lamentations were diegetic because I I just always assumed there was Maybe like a lady slightly off screen just like wailing. <laughs> she is. That, that's how that works, well, right? See, that's another thing. That, that's a good segue for this, is that when you watch, and again, this is the first time I've watched, I've seen it multiple times, first time I watched it with subtitles, is that you can actually see what the creepy female voices are saying. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, when like when Paul's just there, and one of the big theories is that those are possibly Paul's Benny Jesuit ancestors, which makes sense because in the lore you can ultimately tap your you can ultimately tap into the stored memories of your ancestors so much so that you can have a conversation with them, like Ray Skywalker when or, she you know has all the Jedi. Well, yeah. he literally is Assassin's all the Benny Jesuit. Yeah, that's yeah, or that. So again, Dune is massively influential all like throughout yep um yeah i mean that's i think just the last thing i had we talked about the voice i love the way that it sounds but i love how this movie starts before it even starts like before even the wb logo comes up you hear this weird chanting and it's translated dreams or messages from the deep it's a sardic or voiceover like before the movie starts the movie starts so so it's creepy and i think it works can we talk about the shields you mentioned that briefly, yeah. and I didn't. I didn't want to interrupt your role no. there. No, go ahead. Um, I love those shields so much because mm-hmm. I feel a lot of sci-fi tries to incorporate hand-to-hand combat, and it never really works because there are lasers and guns and things. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, comic book movies do this quite a bit too. Like you're you're a cool character and you have a sword, but other people have guns. So like, what's the point? This gives you like an actual reason. For everyone to have swords and do hand-to-hand combat, and it makes it so much more epic. I just, uh, I'm, I'm aware, it, like directly came from the book, but yeah. fa- fantastic. That is so cool. Such a cool idea. Yeah, we've and we just barely scratched the surface on on the weirding way. We saw a little bit with with Jessica when she when they meet the with the Fremen. So there's this whole martial art that we just only got hinted at. So yeah, that that is one of the few things, um, few times that you'll see martial arts employed in, in if done properly in a, in a sci-fi film. Most of the time it is just laser guns. And yeah. in the books, there's even like, you can't use the laser guns next to the shields because you might cause a massive explosion. So yeah, there's a whole, it's, it's, it's deep in the weeds, Corey. Yes. I highly, highly recommend, but, but it is yeah, it's but a big bite. This is where we learn things like diegetically. I mean, we're, <laughs> well, I mean, no, I'm serious. That's yeah. what Justin said. Art, this used to be a, a thinking podcast. It's also educational. Thank you, David W. Collins in the soundtrack show. That's where I learned that. All right. Uh, performances. I, I'm pretty sure we're all going to say the performances across the board are solid. Well, let's make it more interesting. Who was our – maybe we could talk about who we felt like 
nailed the performance better than anyone else in that film. Top top performer. Mm. I mean, I think I think Oscar Isaac is great in this. I was just gonna say Poe Dameron. Yes, I think he did he's, a fantastic job. He's wasted job. in Star Wars and great here. Oh, I, yeah. It's terrible they kill him off though. I. Well, that's his that's his character arc though, Corey. That's, that's what happens. Uh, I thought he was great. I think uh, the guy from Avengers, uh, uh, Stellan Skarsgård. Stellan Skarsgård was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, he, as a so when I heard he, he was cast as the Baron, I was like, I don't know. But again, that's amazing makeup. I, I think he was annoyed. cast for his gravelly voice. Yeah. Like he and just he, sounds like he is struggling to get every single word out. Yeah, he's mm. fantastic. Um, like, I think cast is just great all over. Like, every, there's tons and tons of people you recognize, and some, and often in much smaller roles than you're used to seeing. Doctor Doctor Yu uh, Chen Cheng, I thought he Dr. was Yui? great. Yeah, yeah, Yui. I I think he was great because his character arc. I think he did a great job where he was kind of seeing things, but then he also he's the one he turned over the father, uh, the Duke. He gave the Duke yeah. over, but he gave the Duke a way out. To kill the Baron. Yep. And which, help to Paul which and Jessica. I thought the way he explained all that in that scene, I thought that was powerful. I thought it was a great job that he did. So, uh, Rebecca Ferguson, who plays Paul's mother, Jessica, yeah. Lady Jessica, is not that much older than Timothy Chalamet in this movie. Uh, let's see. What? Seven, 12 years older? She's there 12 were- years older. There were a couple scenes where I thought yeah. to myself, that's a sister. That's not you his know, mother. Like, Sean Connery's only 12 years older than Harrison Ford in, in Sean the 30 Connery. So, you know, it happens. Yeah, it's it's, it's fine. I just want to find that. That, I was that, like, did, oh, wait. that didn't bother And he's supposed to, he's very much supposed to, that's a tough role. And I think Timothy Shalloway was quite good in this as well. That, that's a oh, that's yeah. a role that asks a lot of you. I think, I can't remember how young he is in, in the book. I think he's like 14 or whatever. But it, it there's a giant leap in time in that. Too. So he has to play a kind of a young person, but also wise beyond his years. And it's yeah. So they kind of maybe split the difference a little bit there. But I think he's a was, was a great choice for that role. Um, Dave Batista is he gonna? Are we gonna see him more? You think in part two? Well, he's definitely in it. Yeah, he, he plays an important important part in this. And then just, we haven't seen Fade yet. Is yeah, the other the other nephew. And then uh, Polka awesome. Dot Man, that that guy, he just he looks otherworldly. David Dismal, Dismal, yeah. yeah. And I can't again, his name. Blade, Blade Runner twenty forty nine, right? And Batista, yeah. yeah. So. All right, this I think this movie's quotable. I'm curious to see if you guys pulled yes. out any lines that you. So what do you got, Corey? Uh, I'm gonna go with uh, a couple. One one from uh, Duncan Idaho. Duncan Idaho, I guarantee you guys have thought of this. Dreams make good stories, but everything important happens when we're awake. Yep. And I I absolutely love any movie that makes me think, that makes me pause and gives me some wisdom in it, like true life-learning wisdom. I think that quote is an absolute game landing. Great. I love it. It's fantastic. It's a thinking quote, and it's a great way to say it. I mean, dreams do make good stories, but man, everything that's important happens when you're awake. So you got to make those choices. And so it's good. I, I'm not the biggest fan of this movie. It's an okay movie for me, but that quote is great. Um, I really enjoyed that scene when Lady Jessica was freaking out that uh, Paul was in the middle of the test and she was like, continued to like 
chant to herself like I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Yes, um, I thought that the, scene. It, it's. I mean, it's a. It's a pretty good point, but it's also. It led to her character quite a bit because it was able to show that you know I I believe in this religion or witchcraft or whatever you want to call that I I believe in that firmly but also she has a great love for her son and she's like afraid for the life of her son um and and she just acted her little heart out in that part too I mean she looked stressed out as I think any parent would be knowing that their kid is in that other room facing possible death if not death then a lot of pain yeah and then I go ahead oh no go Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, the litany of fear is, I mean, I've tried to memorize that for forever and haven't quite got it because it's pretty long, but that's a great, it's used multiple times in the book. And, and I think it's, it's also conveyed that Paul is thinking that. And so it's, she's also, kind, it seems like she's almost kind of willing him to be thinking that as well. Yeah, a little bit. So. The, the, uh, because It's not a very uh, comedic movie, but it does have uh, a couple lines in there. Like uh, when Duke Atreides says to Gurney, he's like, Smile, Gurney, and he's like, I am smiling. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that's pretty great. Uh, I'm just going to – some of these are, are pretty serious. Not They're not light, but I'll, I'll pull them anyway. So again, I just mentioned how much Oscar Isaac is great in this. And, and I'll, I'll use this line. He says, a great man doesn't seek to lead. He's called to it, and he answers. He's you know, encouraging Paul to be open to his destiny. Hmm. I, I loved uh, him in this movie. He he was such, like, he walked the line so well between ruler and father. Like, you, you, same with his mother. Like, you could tell he cared for his son, but also wants to prepare his son for that role. And it's like going into it, going uh, into the calling that the emperor asked him to head towards. I think he knew he was going to die. He, there's probably a good chance. Wasn't that a setup? Aren't the oh, emperor no. and the baron doing this to kill the house of Atreides? The emperor Atreides? is using the Harkonnens to eliminate the duke. This is yeah. a power political play, is what Absolutely. this is. Well, I think they said at the beginning, and maybe it's different in the book, or maybe I picked up on this wrong, that the emperor feared both of those houses from getting too powerful. Yeah. So he, he wanted to create a war between the two of them to weaken them both. Well, yeah, yeah the war's been brewing for hundreds of years. He's, he's, their Harkonnens are happy to oblige and help with that. But yeah, I mean, you even have the Emperor using his own, or allowing his own troops, the, the Sardaukar, to be to join in. You know, a little bit where I felt like this is a little out of place for the podcast right now, where I felt like this movie lacked is I I didn't see any like, regular folk. Like, you saw, you saw the houses, uh, but you, you didn't really see any of the ruled, like any of the civilians in their day-to-day life, or you know, how they feel about the houses that they are a part of. And I understand that's not the focus of the story, but you only ever saw the ruling class. And I'm like, I, I kind of want to see like the little guys. I want to, I want to see their day to day. Yeah. That's just not a thing that's featured too prominently in there. I mean, other than, other than the Fremen being just kind of that forgotten class of people. I mean, you do have um, like the housekeeping staff. That's like the closest thing you'll get to that. Oh, like, that's, and, that's true. Yeah. You have you know, the shout out mapes and then you have the, all the people that are chanting, the son of Gahib when, when they land. I mean, that's that's essentially it. But really, it is it is very much about the elite ruling classes. That yeah. that is that is the focus of the book, very much so. Uh, quote I got this one is from the Jameis guy. Who okay now he's dead, right? Is he come back? No, Jameis is gone, and Paul has to take care of his wife now. Which Paul's, which got, a, Paul's got a wife already. 
from oh geez, doggone it. You know, that's the thing. One of it, you know, oh whoa. So uh he makes the in one of his visions, he's talking and he says the mystery of life isn't a problem to solve, but a reality to experience. Mm, and I line. thought, great line. And <laughs> it made me like the guy. I was like, oh man, this guy's gonna be his friend later. And then uh sure enough, he knifes him. I was like, doggone it. What am I going to do with that? <laughs> Thank you, Corey. Well, he has that great line first, and I'm, I'm going to jump in front of Justin here because I want to say it, uh, where he says, and you'll, because you see this in the next movie where he has that great, great line says, may thy knife chip and shatter. <laughs> may right that's such, such a good little insult. Yeah. May thy knife chip and shatter. You know, Paul's going to use it when he fights Fade in the end. That's at the end. Spoiler. Not really spoiler. Spoiler. Oh. <laughs> Maybe. Justin, did you have did you have one more before we? I got one more, and I'm I'm gonna go away from the serious one too. Uh, that scene where the Baron is in there with uh, the Duke, and the you know the Duke cannot can't move, and the Baron like this great big old fat guy, and the Duke's probably stressed out of his mind, and the Baron's just like, "You keep a good kitchen, cousin." Like he's just concerned <laughs> about the food, and he's kind of mocking him at the same time. Um, and that food did look really good. Yeah. He's a foodie. What can I say? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I thought that was interesting, too, because you're reminded that, yes, these these people are related. Not not mm-hmm. super close, but yeah. Um, oh, you got one. I got one more. No, I was just going to, if we can move down to, to body language, facial expressions, costumes, hair, makeup, just kind of wrap up performance. Corey, did you have something else that you wanted to say? Yes. Uh, there's one line in there where... Uh, Liet Kane says, bless the maker and his water. It's doing like a little mm-hmm. prayer. Bless the maker and his water. Bless the coming and going for him. And when I heard bless the maker, I immediately thought of C-3PO. <laughs> bless the maker. Because he says that in the movie. And yeah. I, feel like, I feel like George Lucas had to have been influenced by this movie. And when I see a line like that, I'm like, George, you ripped that right out of this movie. Well, you, right you know what? Because that's got to be Kynes is, You know what Leah Kynes is referring to? What? Who, who she's referring to when she says bless the maker? No. Ah, okay. Well, she's referring to Shai Halud. She's referring to the worms. Oh, okay. Yes, because, it, again, the, kind of a minor spoiler. I'm the, just going to say it, the though. The worms like, are that, like god levels? Well, they said so they worship them as, as a god, but also that's where the spice comes from. Yes, I know that's where the spice. Okay. The then, it's, spice. A little bit of a, it's a little bit of a surprise when you read the book for the first time. But no, that's what it is. They, they worship the, because it's enormous and because it provides the spice, but mainly okay. because it's just enormous and powerful. But yeah, great line. Leah Kynes. Leah Kynes, um, this was one thing that I was a little bit, I don't know, apprehensive about when the when the movie came out. Because that's a character traditionally a male character. Yeah. That they, they gender swap. Um, but I thought she did a pretty good job in this. And it didn't it didn't take me out of the film. Because usually yeah. I'm like, I want the, you know, I love the book. I really want it to basically, the movie to be exactly the same. But that, I think, was a, was a fine change. Good change. <clears throat> one, one, of, one of my favorite um, body language things is actually hers. Um, where when they take him, she takes him out to go look at the spice harvester, and where uh, where Leto says just abandon the spice, she has this look. She turns all the way around in her chair, and you can just see that she is completely shocked. I think it's one of the very first times where she's like, "These guys are different than the Harkonnens. This is actually these guys. This is a man of honor. He cared about people more than he did about the wealth." So I thought that was kind of a it was such a dramatic. Turnaround. I thought that was yeah. kind of interesting. Um, some other things I noticed. The I don't know if I quite paid close enough attention before this. Is that at the beginning when the Sardaukar are getting ready to leave, 
they're getting anointed with blood. I saw the blood, but I didn't see before that there's like sacrifices. They're like bleeding people out. Yeah, that was uh, gruesome. Pretty gruesome. But it's also what I thought was interesting this time. What I noticed is that this is kind of a parallel to Paul's future followers with the jihad's going to happen. But they're just. Yeah. So because it, it's definitely it felt like a religious ceremony that the Sardaukar were undergoing, were undergoing and which is kind of paralleling again, like this religious jihad to go through where the Fremen are going to just go through and just massacre billions of people in Paul's name. So it's kind of like it's been happening for a while. It's just going to happen on someone else's watch, I suppose. It's bad all around. Um, let's see, other stuff. The Harkonnens all bald and pale. thought it was an interesting choice. That's not directly from the book, but I thought it kind of makes sense. I have to mention Oscar Isaac's magnificent beard because it is pretty wonderful. It is. He wears that so glorious. His beard might be better than Aquaman's beard. I think. It's pretty it's, thick. It's so meticulously kept, too. You know that guy waking up every single morning and make sure every <laughs> hair is just in place. Yes. Well done, sir. Yeah. So, Corey, as a first-time first time viewer, uh, what do you think about the still suits? <laughs> You understand, like, what the, the whole shields? thing with this? No, the still suits that the Fremen wear. Did you catch what those were? It, like, recirculates the water, those things? Oh, the, yeah, I liked them. Not I, just he, the water. The pee. All, mm. they yeah, gotta, all yeah, they drink the, the pee, the water. The liquid, the liquid, yeah. Sorry. Here's all why liquid. I love that. Because <laughs> right now we're talking in solar system in eighth grade science, and we're talking about the International Space Station, which filters – all the water that is circulating through the space station. So that means the water that they pee, the air that they breathe, and the exhaling water, mm -hmm. everything that's in that still suits is going in the space station filters and they're NASA's recycling and they're they're drinking it because the humans are the number one drink water, wastewater producer on the space station. And so they have to drink it. They drink their own pee. But it's filtered. So that's fascinating. Yeah. And so that's fascinating because I was like, when I saw that part and they were telling me when the guy, uh, the gal said it filters everything, you know, your yeah. pee and everything. I was like, of course it does. Why wouldn't it make sense? Yeah. You're in a desert. Waste planet, not want not. Or you're in space. Mm -hmm. Either way, oh. yeah. you want to drink filtered stuff. You're okay. I love that scene. That's another one of those things where, you know, she's commenting about Paul putting on the still suit that he knew how to instinctively knew how to do. Yes. It. I also love the entire like uh, background and culture that the idea that no one has water would have created like how the man walks in and like spits on the table so he's like thank you for the the gift of your body's moisture or whatever he says i'm like that yeah. is awesome that's exactly how that would work <laughs> yeah yeah like well, what a sacrifice what a sec and and uh well because you're giving something up by doing that you're you're yeah. shorting yourself which makes sense and his his little thing with the boots i thought was fantastic because she points out and says he will know your ways as if he's been there the whole time kind of thing. I thought that line was really good to say, okay, he is the prophetic chosen one. Yep. I liked, one thing I liked a lot with this that I did not like in the, in the David Lynch version is they kind of, the the uh, the Spacing Guild navigators, and you only get a quick look at them in this one when they come down with the Judge of the Change and Caladan at the beginning when they got these glass helmets to kind of fill with the orange melange gas. Yeah. Um, which I thought was a nice compromise. They're very strange looking in the David Lynch version, but and they don't really call it out, which is which is I think it's it's almost more like an Easter egg. Like if you know what you're looking at, you're like, oh cool, that's a spacing guild. And if you don't, you're like, oh, okay, it's just some guys. Are you talking about the helmets that they couldn't see their faces? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I thought yeah. I didn't like those because I thought someone could be making faces at you and you wouldn't know. <laughs> you know? They're, just, they're in the they're in the melange gas all the on, time. On the upside, you could make faces and no one would know. Okay. That's true. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that, I, that is the other side. Part of me sitting there going, I wish I had one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh Okay, this movie also won an Oscar for setting and design, which, again, just beautifully captured the book. We talked about this before, about the balance with CGI. A lot of principal photography is on location. I think that's another reason why this movie works so well. Um, it's in Budapest and Jordan. Norway stands in for Caledon, which I wouldn't have picked. Um, How did, what, where were the, all the shots of uh, Arrakis? Was a lot of that... CGI See, or is, is that well, Abu Dhabi is another location too, so I'm assuming that a lot of those wide shots are probably probably there, which I think. Yeah, okay. I mean, Jordan is where what's what's the planet in in Rogue One? Also, there's some of that in Rise of Skywalker too. Yeah, I imagine they'd have to oh, do some Jetta, editing Jetta. to <clears throat> on Jeddah. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, and probably with models and forced perspective and that kind of stuff, but. And now that you mentioned Rogue One, like I, again, I I like this movie a lot of uh, for the same reason that I like Rogue One and Blade Runner twenty forty nine is it feels gritty. Like whoever did the costume design, everything looks lived in. Nothing is clean and nice. It's it's dirty. Yeah, as it should be. You're on a sand planet. Rustic everywhere. Yeah. Yep. It's coarse gritty sand gets everywhere. I hate it's it. <laughs> Uh, let's see. I, we talked about the ornithopters before, but this is another good time just to talk about. They kind of look like dragonflies. They kind of very much yeah. an insect look to them. When they As drop the blades the- back and then fly, yeah, like, kind of fall. That's kind of cool. I really yeah. want to know if those ha- those have a possibility of flying. I just don't see them having enough lift. But I mean, the ornithopter's been around for like a hundred years. I don't know how well how effective it was. Certainly wasn't like this. Are you Can you imagine if vehicle? like, yeah. Look it up. Wait. What? No, in real life, no. I don't know if they flew, but they was that was early designs. Can you imagine if like one of those wings was slightly out of sync though, and you just yeah, that would that'd be yeah. so bumpy. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to Google this now. Yeah, you do that. Like um, some other things I want to talk about with set decoration uh, is that in Caladan, lots there's lots of circles, which I thought was interesting. Um, it's very peaceful. There's also heavy Asian flair, like there's a bonsai tree, but also. Again, a lot of these things are mixed. There's nothing that's like 100% in one influence. So there's also a lot of Spanish influence there too, where especially like you have the bullfighter portrait of Paul's grandfather, the old duke, and, and you also have the head of the bull that killed him. I mean, you did bullfighting. Um, lots of wood in there. We talked about the palm trees a little bit, which I think that's a great scene that they really hammer home, like where the priorities are. It's, you know, it's drinking the equivalent of five men. There's 20 of them. I thought that was interesting too that uh, the Harkonnens, when they invaded, burnt the palm trees. Like they must have kept the palm trees alive for quite a while too, if they were the previous yeah. tenants of that area, and they just come and they're like, ah, we don't care. It's a good catch. Uh, yeah, there's an actual aeronautics place that talks about the ornithopter, yeah. and that it is actually a feasible. Uh, it says, by all means, it's possible to build and fly. We have been doing this design for years. The only problem is to make it match the Dune movie ornithopter. This is currently <laughs> not possible and will never be attempted. Yeah. So, but 
but the dragon wean design is quite efficient. So that's a little interesting. It's a very, very uh, unique and alien type of thing. Like very, like I said, just just super unique to the Dune universe. Yeah. So that's yeah, cool. like the, it's it's uh, recognizable and kind of very much a hallmark that is very cool, like an X wing in Star Wars. Yeah. X wing is just synonymous with Star Wars. The ornithopter mm-hmm. synonymous with Dune. A couple of props that we got to pay attention to um, that we'll we seen uh, we saw the the Duke Leto signet ring that that was in in the stuff that that Yui left for them. That's going to come in. That's going to be a super important thing for later on. Is you see kind of Paul's reemergence from the desert that he has that because he's going to have to essentially prove that he's you know, that he's now the Duke. Uh, we talked about the Gamjabar. Uh, the Orange Catholic Bible a bit. I really like the Chris knives. Corey, did you catch what the Chris knives were? No. So the Chris knife is, uh, it's essentially, it's its a tooth off the worm. Oh. But it becomes a, it's a well, blade. Well, those worms are so big, that tooth must have been like one of the baby teeth, because, dang. <laughs> yeah. Feels like those teeth could be made into, <laughs> like, lances or long swords. Yeah. Yeah, have, have sure. you seen for for Dune two the promotional like popcorn buckets? Yeah, they're they're just the giant Reaching. worm where you have to like stick your <laughs> yeah, hand in that. That's, How that's do you get weird. popcorn out of that? <laughs> I, I don't. Want the graboids are fantastic. I liked them. I thought they were so big. Graboids. They were huge. They were great. It was either the graboids or the thing from Star Wars: uh, Return of the Jedi that's in the yeah. No, the I Sarlacc. Yeah. The Sarlacc is absolutely a reference to that. Yeah. Okay. Um, we're running a little bit long, so let's see. We talk about the characters. I don't know if anybody we haven't talked about. Here. Let's do a quick recap on Duncan Idaho. Craig, why is he so great? He seems out of place for this movie. He's a swashbuckler. He's a, that's who he is. It, it, he absolutely embodies the character. That's who he is. Yeah, he I don't embed, know. I he's, just, he's the kind of guy like Jason Momoa could totally embed himself with the Fremen. Come on. That's true. He is pretty likable. It seems like he and Javier Bardem could hang out. Who plays Stilgar? Great, just great pick for for Stilgar too. Oh, you're he just incredible. he just seemed like out of place, jovial. Like everyone else is very serious, and I don't yeah, know. you get a little bit of levity though. I think I think that works. I I will tell you this. You know what? If you review back, I mean that that entire cast, there is there are some epic movies among all of them. Yes, to to have them walking on the set together. I mean, and from Marvel, DC, some of these guys had to have been in same movies together. I mean. Well, yeah. They're just. Well, I think enormous. it speaks. It speaks to Denny Villeneuve's reputation as a director. Yeah, and it's like it's like the same thing with like which we'll talk about Oppenheimer next time with with Christopher Nolan, where you can get actors to come in to take less money to because they want to work with that, those people. So, yeah. hey, is get, Gurney Gurney Hollich still alive? Right. Yes, so he'll Josh feature prominently Bowie, in the next one. Yeah. Is he gonna fight Dave Bautista? I can't tell you that. Okay, because I'm sitting here thinking this is kind of like a Thanos and a Drax reunion. Because well, Drax cut him with a knife on the leg yeah. in uh, in the movie and in Infinity Wars. Infinity. Nobody hates the, the Arcanans more than Gurney Halleck, though. Okay, there you go. So, okay, he, yeah, yeah. Uh, so we talked. We've talked about Hero's Journey a little bit. This one fits the profile pretty well, except for there, it's going to subvert things. I mean, we know that Jihad's coming. Like, that's not a typical thing that the hero does. Like, that's going to happen. So, it's kind of a cautionary tale about following messianic figures as well. But uh, the one one thing I did want to point out that I really liked about this, they did a little bit, they talked a little bit about it, Corey, and so I'm curious if you picked up on this. 
that when they when they land, when the Atreides land, the the people are shouting Lisan Al Gahib, which means voice from the outer world. They're expecting him. Like usually, you know, in these narratives, the chosen one kind of comes out of nowhere. Yeah. But it's like, it's almost like they're just like, yeah, you're the guy until you also prove that you're the guy. Uh, which is kind of an interesting thing because you have this thing that's in the books too. It's called the the missionaria protectiva, which is this. They're the the Benny Jesuits have been going in and like sowing the seeds of this mythology forever, yeah, for hundreds of years, so that when Benny Jesuits show up, they're like, "Hey, you know, you're the you're the guys that we've been hearing about." So the Benny Jesuit have been laying the groundwork for this. Yes. This so why why would they do that if they weren't sure that Paul was it? Well, I think that ultimately what it is is they're still working on the Kwisatz Haderach. Whether it's Paul or not is is a whole other thing. Because even the Reverend Mother is not sure that he's going to be the Kwisatz Haderach. He hasn't proven that he is yet. He has some other tests that he has to undergo, which we'll see in the next movie. The Water of Life and all of that stuff. So, yeah. yeah ultimately, that, that's their, that's been their whole thing, manipulating the, blood, the bloodlines. The Benny Jesuits are all about creating that Kwisatz Haderach. And there's been several failed attempts at that, too, which we don't see. That's not in this movie, I don't think. But it's in the books that there has been attempts that have not gone over. So. Okay. Um, world building, obviously, super, super dense. And like I mentioned before, there's appendices at the back of the book. And Or I know you felt kind of lost. But you've only seen it the one time, too, right? Yeah, Craig, I don't know if I'm going to watch this one twice. <laughs> I think but, it took me until my third time to actually be like, oh, oh that's I get long. it. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I mean, it's it's a great movie. I think you could watch it and fast forward through a few parts. Oh, no. See, yeah, I'm thinking what? once you watch the second movie, Dune Part 2, that I think you're going to be like, all right, I'm going to go back. And when I can watch them together, I think that will be a pretty great experience. See, I think it's a little bit like, uh, like Star Wars Episode 7. Star Wars Episode 7, I freaking loved that movie. But because eight and nine didn't really follow through, it's hard for me to go back and watch seven. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and same with this. If Dune Part Two is amazing, which I, it sounds like it's going to be, I can easily go back and watch this over and over. But if Dune Part Two is trash, I I don't want to waste my time. The sure. word on the street is Empire Strikes Back level entertainment. Yeah. yeah, I've heard that. The Dark Knight and the Two Towers. Yeah, all three of those. All so. right, I'm expecting big things. Because they did get me at the end. The end of the movie got me with uh, him killing the guy instead of him being killed. Like I thought, I was convinced he had to do a Neo from the Matrix die to get reborn. And when he killed the guy, I was like, "What the heck?" Just so he caught, but he reeled me in. Reeled me in. Yep. So we already kind of transitioned into final thoughts. Any other final thoughts on on Dune Part One? I think we've said it. I've said it at least. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Corey's wrong. If you have, if you haven't seen it. <laughs> Go see it. Sorry for the spoilers if you're still here. But I, I will say uh, I would be interested to go see it in the theaters. This is going to be in the theaters, right? Coming up? In part two. Yeah, it's coming out March so, 1st. So it'll be out shortly. This episode will drop. Let's, let's talk Wednesday. about it. It'll, it'll be out next week. Go see Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think want to see it on the biggest. I, I didn't see the first one on the big screen because it was still COVID stuff. But this movie, I think the second one begs to be seen on the big screen. All right, I, I can't wait for it. I, I really do hope we get adaptations of all the books. I, that's a that's a big dream. That wait, so you're happen, telling me if I go watch this movie, this might end with a to be continued? No. Okay. <laughs> no. I mean, I'm, right there, I was about to say I'm not in. So I'm out. That, no, Dune, Dune, the one book. This is just the two halves of the one book, and then okay, he wrote later on wrote Dune Messiah, 
Which is about Paul. Okay. That's later on in the timeline. So we know he's in the third one. Okay. Yes. So, and Denny Villeneuve has already talked about, yes, that's a movie I would like to make. So. It's a career maker for this guy. Okay. There you go. Okay. So as we close, we just want to say thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on X and Facebook. Email us at readingbetweenreels at gmail.com or use the SpeakPipe app on our website. If you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend. Support us by writing a review on your favorite podcast catcher. And one last thing, our next episode will be a review of Oppenheimer with returning guest Anthony King of Force Ghost Conversations. Send us an email or voicemail about your favorite moments from Oppenheimer, and we'll share it on the next episode. 